Attention all mortals, veterans and civilians alike. It's time to buckle up and get ready for a wild ride because you just tuned in to the Swandingo Files. Your host, Steven Swanson, is here to help you navigate the crazy world of transitioning from military life to civilian life. And let me tell you, it's a bumpy road, but with a little bit of humor and a lot of determination, we can make it through together. Okay, the reason for that was back then, my late father got laid off from his job and wasn't making enough money to help cover the overhead at, at home. So I needed to go to work to help support the family, my parents. So at 16, I quit high school and went to work full time in a, in a Catholic hospital doing 12-hour shifts. And I did that. That that happened in October of 1956 is when I started. And I did that for a little over a year. And I thought to myself, you know, there's got to be a better life than this. I mean, because I was, there was no promotions. I got $150 a month salary before deductions for, for my effort, okay? How much I, money compared to today? Yeah, well, I thought uh, there was no future for me as a young man as far as employment in that particular area. We were at the end of the Korean War. It had just finished in 1953. We weren't producing any military goods anymore. Uh, there was very little industry in the area. So I thought, you know, back then, we still had the selective service system in effect. And at 18, I had to register for the military draft. And when I turned 18, which was December of 1957, I did so. I went to the, you know, the Edwardsville, Illinois, to the, the county courthouse to register. And that was on my birthday on December 9th, 1957. As soon as I turned 18, I, I Build my square. And then the very next day, I got to thinking, I said, you know, I don't think I want to go in the Army. I knew I was headed there because back then you served in the Army. It was automatic. You were going to be drafted. They took everybody. And I said, you know, if I got to go in the military, I'm going to make it my choice. And as a youngster, I was always fascinated by airplanes. I always wanted to fly. That was my big goal in life was to be able to fly. So you chose the Air Force. So I chose the United States Air Force. On December 10th, 1957, I went to the local Air Force recruiter and talked to him about what I wanted to do, filled out all the paperwork. Lo and behold, to my astonishment, there was a waiting list of over four months for getting time. basic training at Lackland. That's how many people wanted in the Air Force. I put my name on the list. I did all my prerequisites. You know, I, I did my physical. I filled all the squares. And my recruiter said, okay, I will contact you when I have a basic training date. That date turned out to be April 16th, 1958. That's a long time. So uh, so you just basically continued working until you shipped out? I continued to work until I got my date for basic training. Now, 
the real quick, you know, we're in a modern world today. Everybody jets everywhere, right? Yep. Okay. When I went to basic training at Lackland Air Force Base, San Antonio, Texas, on that date, I was boarded up on a troop train at Union Station, St. Louis, Missouri, and spent 19 hours on a troop train going to San Antonio. That's how I got there. Nobody today knows anything about any like that. I know everywhere I went. Exactly. And when we get to basic training, when we get to the Air Force, it's just like you see in the movies. I was meted. They met me at the train station in a military bus with a top sergeant. We had to fall in formation, right, with all our suitcases and everything. A bunch of ragtag kids didn't know any better. They loaded us on the bus, took us out to Lackland, and my military training started. And believe it or not, I was placed in an open bay barracks left over from World War II. Same yeah. thing in the movies. Yeah, they, they've gotten rid of almost all of those now. I, I think the last ones were at I Fort Knox. I think they, I believe if I'm right at Lackland, they left like one or two of them for a monument or something. Yeah, I think so. Um, I know there's a few, and they they changed some um, from the different bases. They changed some into, like, training sites for, uh, like, urban operations and stuff like that. So there's still a few, but I think a lot of them are pretty much gone now. Well, that, we were in the old World War II barracks with the open bays and the regular old GI parties. You name it, we did it. Had to march to chow. You know, uh, it was funny because uh, my day would start at 4.30 in the morning mm-hmm. for – Basically, and I'd march to chow, and then we'd start our KP duty and the whole bit, and then we'd do the do classroom, the drill, and everything. Well, I spent five weeks at Lackland Air Force Base. Then I got orders for tech school, and I became uh, – I got what I wanted. I was awarded aircraft mechanic school at, at Shepherd Air Force Base, Texas. Hey, that's actually right where I'm next to right now. Uh, Are you really? You went, I'm at Wichita Falls right now. Are yep. you kidding me? No, I, I moved here a, a year and a half ago with my wife and my six kids because I just got tired of Illinois. And I, I'm not, I'm prior Army, not Air Force, but, uh. Well, I understand. But, uh, moved down here. Uh, they had a job opening here with the company I was with at the time and it just happened to be Wichita Falls. Wow. And That's my, amazing. uh, my neighbor literally, he, he, he was an E9, just retired. Uh, I, I don't even know if it's, I think it's been about a year. He just retired from the Air Force up here at Shepherd. Okay. So, yeah, so it really is. That's smaller. It is a small world, isn't it? When we when we think about it. Well, I I got transferred after five weeks of Lackland. I went to Shepherd, and I was at Shepherd. I had three additional weeks of what was known as Phase Two basic training. I spent three weeks at Shepherd in basic training to finish up. At the end of that three weeks, I got my first promotion to Airman Third Class. I went from $78 a month pay as a basic to a whopping $82.50. That's not a lot of money. No, it it was terrible. But it got better by me hanging on or hanging around. I got, I accomplished what I wanted to do, but I I had to become a career airman, so to speak, uh, due to circumstances beyond my control. I I did my thing at Shepherd. I was in aircraft mechanic school for 16 weeks. And upon graduation, I got my first PCS assignment, and it was to the to 
Forbes Air Force Base in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, Forbes is now an Air Reserve. I think it's all Reserve National Guard. But I got transferred to Forbes Air Force Base in Topeka, Kansas, in the 55th Aerial Refueling Squadron on KC-97Gs. Jeez. That's funny because that was also my first duty station was right there in uh, Manhattan, Kansas. At, Are you? Uh, Riley. You're kidding me. <laughs> nope. My I, first duty station. Believe it or not, I've been there, done that. It, was, it wasn't too bad. It was super flat. There was not a whole lot out there. I know. There wasn't a whole lot in Topeka either. No, no. Uh, a lot of tornadoes. Yeah, well, I know all about that, and a lot of winter weather I didn't care for either. Uh, I was only, ironically, I was only at Forbes for a short time. I got to Forbes in October of 1958. My first PCS actually became an aircraft commanding uh, mechanic on KC-97s, was a student, you know, in training, had an instructor, actually learned how to work on the aircraft. And nine months later, July of 1959, I got PCS orders to Sonderstrom Air Base, Greenland, on a remote assignment. How was that? I've never, I didn't know that. Well, that base is now deactivated. That was a shock to the system. In the meantime, you know, when I got that assignment, I got my 30 days delay en route and 10 days travel time. My home was in Illinois, just outside of St. Louis. So I wasn't really going out of my way to do anything. And I went back home on, on leave and I got married. And when, once I got married and, and made my assignment, I had a leaving course left. I left my wife behind. My wife got pregnant. And I had a baby girl. I was a father at the age of 19. And my daughter was seven months old before I ever got to hold her. She was born while I was in Greenland. Wow. I saw pictures, but I never actually got to, to hold her until she was seven months old. My PCS assignment out of Greenland, I flew SA-16s up there, by the way, as an aircraft flight mechanic. And that, that aircraft's not in service anymore either. But I was on SA-16s in Greenland, uh, search and rescue. And uh, after the year in Greenland, when I rotated back, my next PCS assignment was Barksdale Air Force Base, Shreveport, Louisiana. So I, I was transferred from Greenland to Barksdale uh, uh, into the Strategic Air Command, and I was put to work on C-124A models. I was in the old, these, I'm going way back for you here. Yeah, that's, I, I'm pretty sure we don't even have those anymore. So. Oh, no, there's none. Yeah. All the aircraft I'm referring to, the ones I'm talking about, are no longer active in service. Yeah, there's I think, is, is Bardsdale even still there? Because I was in, uh. Bardsdale's still there. Is Bardsdale's still there. Oh, yeah. Because I knew there was uh, an airbase somewhere, because I was at, my last duty station was Fort Polk, Louisiana, and I knew there was. Uh, been to Fort Polk, too. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I've been there, done that. There's very few places I haven't seen. Uh, when I went to Barksdale, uh, unfortunately, I was at Barksdale about five years. And when I first got transferred there, I was in, back in those days, uh, SAC, Strategic Air Command, had their own support system. They were self-sustaining. So the 124 
outfit that I was in was a third strategic support squadron. We flew our own materials for SAC. I'd go make a trip somewhere, come back and unload it. It was for Barstale, mm-hmm. different aircraft parts, whatever it is. Okay. I was there for five years. Well, while I was there, uh, living in base housing, uh, unfortunately, because I didn't make much money, my wife had to go to work as a car hop at a restaurant, you know, work. I was, I made, uh, airman second class while I was there and I got to $124 a month salary. And my wife had to go to work. We were living on base, base housing and she had went to work one evening. She had to work nights and I was home with our daughter and I was a young man, inexperienced with kids, didn't know what I was doing, trying to be a father at 20. And I gave my young daughter a bath and unfortunately, I left her in the bathtub by herself while I went. The bathroom and her bedroom were just across the hallway from each other. And I left her there unsupervised. So my, my mistake, you know, and went in and got her pajamas and everything for bed. And when I come back, I heard this blood curdling scream. And when I come back, I guess she had attempted to stand up in the bathtub. Uh, she was two years old at the time. And when she did, she grabbed, and when she grabbed, she turned hot water on herself. And she had second and third degree burns on 45% of her body. Uh, she was rushed to the emergency room on base at, at Barksdale at the hospital. She was there for a 24-hour observation. They did emergency treatment to her, and then they transfer her to Schubert Sanitarium, which was a burn center in Shreveport. And she was there for about three days for further treatment. And then they told me, said, well, we need to air evac your daughter to Fort Sam Houston, Texas. Okay, to Brook Medical Center, the, the Army Medical Center at Fort Sam Houston, world-renowned burn center. It's, it's by far one of, if not the best hospital in uh, the world. Yeah, they come from all over the world there for treatment. Well, that's where she wound up. And she lived for a nine additional days and passed away. Uh, she, the burns were healing up. Uh, the way that they treated the burns back then was to have the body nude and they were using sun lamps or whatever and, and aloe or whatever, and it was drying everything up. But she was too young. Her heart didn't take it. It was, it was too much for her, so she passed away. And what made me turn into a – it's a long story, but what made me turn into a, a career airman and served 20 years, I needed money for a funeral. I didn't know where to get that money. And I would – my I had reached the end of my four-year term. I was on my last year of my enlistment. So I said, well, if I re-enlist, I get a re-enlistment bonus and that'll cover barely expenses. I did re-enlist. Okay. In 1962, I signed up for four more years, got promoted to a three striper airman, first class, black sergeant, if you want to call it that, got part of my re-enlistment bonus and used that money to transport my late daughter back to Illinois for funeral. That turned me into a career airman due to unfortunate. I I had no choice. I Once I committed myself for another four years, well, my goodness, I said, I might as well stay and make a career out of it, which I did. I, I remained an aircraft mechanic for a while, and then I became a flight engineer. 
I served all over the world. Uh, I did a tour in Clark Air Base in the Philippines for two years. I, I, I was in Vietnam. I did a tour at NKP. I mean, you name it, I've done it. But that's basically how I became a 20-year man in the United States Air Force. And I was always fascinated by flying. While I was at Clark, which is 1966, uh, I saw on the bulletin board they were looking for uh, a new program for flight engineers for the C-141. It was a brand-new aircraft being produced by Lockheed Martin. And they were looking for people to get into the flight engineer program. They were looking for air crew members. I went to personnel and signed up, filled out all the paperwork, and was accepted. And I became a flight engineer on C-141s for the rest of my career. I wound up going from the Philippines to McCord Air Force Base Air, Fort Lewis, Washington. What? Spent- um, what? Because I'm not real familiar with the Air Force and all their job titles. What exactly is a flight engineer, though? The flight engineer's duty was to, you sit right behind the pilot and the co-pilot in the mm-hmm. cockpit or the flight station. My job was to, to monitor and maintain all the systems on the aircraft, hydraulic, electric, uh, fuel, you name it. And I would have to coordinate with my navigator. We had to work together on, you know, fuel we had, destination involved, how long we could stay airborne. It was quite a job. It, it was a lot of responsibility. Uh, I flew all over the world when I got into that aircraft, and it was exciting. I spent five years at McCord, and then uh, all of a sudden I got PCS orders for NKP, AC-119K gunships. So I had to go to Nacom Phnom Royal Thai Air Base in Thailand, and I spent a year there, and I was assigned to gunships when I got there, and they transferred. About, let's see, I got there in August of 1972, and they moved the aircraft to Da Nang from NKP. The whole outfit went to Da Nang, but they kept me at NKP as a mechanic, uh, and I went to work on EC-47, uh, electronic goonie birds. Uh, I had electronic warfare on board, and that's how I finished my tour at NKP. When I rotated from NKP, I went back to 141s as a flight engineer. And I was assigned to Travis Air Force Base. And that's where I finished my 20-year career. I was out at Travis. Uh, I got to Travis in January of 19, well, 1974, January, because I had extended leave coming and whatever I took. And I got to Travis in 1974, uh, got requalified as a flight engineer. Uh, two months later, I was upgraded to an instructor engineer, and I finished my time at Travis and retired in April of 1978. So you told me about you told me about your worst experience, um, you know, with the child and why you stayed in. But what? But not the whole military was bad. I'm sure. What was your best? Oh no! Best thing about the military, getting into the 141 program, without a doubt, becoming a flight engineer on the C-141A was the highlight of my military career. That was. I tell Marilyn. I, I tell all my family. That was most amazing aircraft I was ever assigned to. It, I did more on that airplane than I could ever imagine. It flew like a dream, and it flew me all over the world. I, Over my career, Stephen, by being a 141 flight engineer, I'll give you a small example. 44 foreign countries, 
completely around the world twice and in every state in the United States of America at least once. Yeah. Not wow. very many people can make that statement. And I'm a high school, I'm a high school dropout, by the way. I got my high school GED in the Air Force. I never finished high school. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of the same. I got my GED. I got, you know, kicked out of the house on my 18th birthday and didn't really have much of a choice as either the yeah. streets or join the army. And at that time, I'd only had a 63 on the test. So Air Force had to be a 65 or above. And so I just missed it. It's like, I got to get the heck out of here or. I'm going to end up dead or in prison. So I, I signed a six-year initial contract as a scout in the Army, which looking back, I wish I would have changed, picked a different job, something that was a little more technical, but I also had a lot of fun. So I never, uh, never dreamed for a moment that I could qualify to be an air crew member and walk off the airplane with the pilot. I'd always worked on it. The pilot and the co-pilot would leave, and, and I'd be out there as a mechanic getting dirty. And I, all of a sudden, I became a flight engineer, and when we pulled bags, mine came off first. And I was there right in the same crew transportation system with my pilot and co-pilot, and somebody else worked on it. I, that was a dream come true for me. Well, it's nice that, uh, you know, because in the Army, our saying is travel the world, meet interesting people, and then kill them. At least in the Air Force, you've got to meet interesting people and not always <laughs> I, have war. I used to tell them, you know, when we were flying, I flew all over. Like I said, I made some long trips. Sometimes I'd be airborne for over 10 hours. And uh, I used to tell my pilot and co-pilot, we'd sit there, we'd sit there when we're, we're on autopilot, winging our way at 35,000 feet or whatever across the Pacific and with nothing to do. And I'd tell my pilot and co-pilot, I said, you know, I got the best job in the world. And they, they kind of, you know, we get playing 20 questions a little bit. They said, what, what are you talking about, Sarge? I said, listen to me. I've got two college graduates flying a high school dropout from one happy hour to another around the world. How do you get any better than that? They would crack up every time. <laughs> You'd make a great uh, recruiting video for the Air Force, honestly. <laughs> uh, the Air Force was good to me. Over. Other than two real bad times, the loss of my daughter and going to Vietnam cost me a divorce. Hmm. Well, you're not a true vet unless you've got a divorce under your belt, so I got a divorce. Well, I'm fully qualified, okay? <laughs> but other than those two things, my I have no regrets, and I tell my kids, all, I do it all over again. Yeah, I mean, I'm retired now, too, and looking back, I mean, you know, I did four deployments to Iraq, two to Afghanistan. Um, they were hard times. Um, I mean, nothing like back when you were in the military. I mean, our first deployment was, you know, we didn't have all the technology at that point. But then, you know, once I went back to them five, six, and after, we started getting all that stuff over there. So it became a little bit better of a deployment. But, um, it, I mean, looking back, I wouldn't change anything. Um, I met a lot of good people. Um, I still keep in touch with a lot of people. Um, there's being a veteran has its perks to a point. Um, you are, you know, it's a community that I'm glad I'm a part of because finding out more and more every day, people like, you know, you, Marilyn, myself, and all the ones I've interviewed so far, we do kind of like to reach out to one another and help and support one another. And so we are a unique type group. I mean, we're special. 
But so, okay, so we all know Vietnam veteran um, had a different stigma coming back from war than what I did. I yeah. came back from. Can you uh, kind of explain a little bit of what, what you went through? Because I'll explain I in a minute, but. Uh, it, it, I can pretty quickly. Uh, when I rotated out of Vietnam, I couldn't wear my military uniform. I had to be in civilian clothes by the time I got to Honolulu because there was so much anti-Vietnam protest going on in America at that time. It was everything, you know, uh, and when you came back, I came back on a chartered airline, so they knew you were coming from in-country back to, back to the world. When I landed at San Francisco International Airport that day, uh, I had them, I was booed at, I had them throw eggs at me. They called me a baby killer. Uh, I watched the, pardon me. I watched the American flag burn. You can do a lot of things to me, but when you burn my flag. Well, seeing what's going on today, now today but in all honesty though um i i didn't no 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 nobody that's deployed to iraq or afghanistan or wherever now has experienced that and a lot of that is to do with the vietnam veterans because what they went through when they came back they didn't want that to happen to us when we came back so when we came back you know 2003 and you know so on so on we had lines of people lined up at the airport oh i never seen them yeah, I never seen such pro-American in my life back in that day. I remember that, and I was so grateful. So yeah, and and I I that's why I give Vietnam veterans so much thanks because what they went through, they made sure we didn't go through that, and they made sure they actually had a welcoming party. I mean, there's still people that don't agree with the war. That's one thing. That's fine, but don't disrespect. It's okay. Soldiers. I mean, I, I understand that, but you don't have to degrade my flag to, to tell me you, you don't agree with. It. Voice your opinion, but respect the flag. Exactly. So you did your 20 years. You had a good time. You traveled probably way more than I ever did, even though my biggest thing is Iraq. <laughs> my biggest thing is Iraq, Afghanistan, and then a year in South Korea. Thankfully, I got a little bit of a break over there. Um, but uh, 20 years, why, what made you call it quits at 20? My main reason? Quits, retire. Uh, yeah. well, no, i tell you the primary reason. I had almost 10 years in grade for E7 mm. and could not get promoted. Uh, you had to take a promotion test. I don't even know how they do it anymore because I'm not familiar with anything. But back then, I had to take a promotion test in my career field. And when I took the test, most of the questions that I had to answer concerned a C-124 aircraft flight engineer. And I'm on a 141 jet. I didn't even understand what they were talking about half the time. So I would, my scores were so low on that test, I never got to the cutoff to get promoted. Yeah, I think I think the Air Force still kind of does the same thing. Uh, I I guess they do. I really don't know. But I can tell you that uh, the last time I took that promotion test, I had made up my mind to retire at the end of the twenty. My squadron commander at the time at Travis Air Force Base, ironically, this is ironically, my squadron commander, who was a lieutenant colonel, I knew him personally as a friend, 
we flew together at McCord when he was a first lieutenant. So I'd known him a long time, and, and I didn't even know I didn't know he was my squadron commander at Travis till I reported in. Well, I went to see him, and he he uh, we went we got social right. He says, Herb, he says, would you hang around? He says, if you if you'll go past twenty, I'll do my damnedest to get you promoted promoted to master sergeant E seven. I said, Joe, I've had enough. He wanted me to hang in there because I was a high high time flight engineer. I only had two guys in the squadron had more flying time on the airplane than I did. And I was a, a very highly qualified instructor engineer. I knew my job quite well. I'd trained a lot of guys. And he tried and tried and tried to get me to hang on for more than 20. And I said, no, I've, I've already made up my mind that I've had it. And that's what caused me to retire, the fact that I couldn't get promoted. I had over nine years in grade as a tech for for master sergeant, and I knew it was time for me to go. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely. I didn't want to, but I knew it was time. It's definitely different for the uh, Air Force. I know in the Army, we just, I was because I was in E-7 in the Army, uh, and you just submit a packet with your picture and your instantly right. cars and yeah, you know, I had, a bunch of sergeant majors look at it, and then. I had a test for promotion. Yeah, and, and I think they kind of need to go to that in the Army, too, as a test. Uh Ironically, it turned out to be a good thing for me by getting out because when it, when I got out, there was no there was no transition training of any kind. When you get out got out of active duty back then, which is 1978, uh, you found a job by word of mouth. Your buddy got out before you, and he said, "Hey, listen, why don't you go fill an application? So and so, they're hiring people, that sort of thing." You had to hunt and peck to find a job. Well, that's how I got on with Budweiser. I had a buddy that got out ahead of me, and he lived about two houses down from me at the time in in uh, Vacaville, California. And I just I just retired. And he says, Herb. He says, uh, Anheuser Busch is looking for people. Do you know do you know about that? I said, I, I didn't have a clue. And he told me what to do. So I I went through the process and filled out the paperwork. And lo and behold, I got a call for an interview. At Anheuser Busch and look good for unemployment because I was on unemployment. So I put that on my card, right? I went down for the first interview and, uh, the personnel manager played 20 questions with me and asked me about my background. I told him what I'd done. I just retired from service, so on and so forth. He said, he, it was funny. He says, well, what do you know about the beer industry? And I thought for a second, I said, oh boy. I said, let me tell you how qualified I am. I know how to pop tops and Budweiser. That's the extent of my beer industry. And he got a big chuckle out of it. I said, I drink with the best of them. And he, they said, well, thank you very much for your honesty, so on and so forth. And I thought, well, that's the end of that. You know, I got my interview. I still go draw unemployment compensation because I went looking for a job. Uh, two weeks later, I got called for a second one. The plant manager brought me in, interviewed me, went over the same thing. And he says, listen, we hire veterans as a preference. You're a Vietnam veteran. You want a job, you've got it. That simple. Just that simple. Just that simple. He says, "You want a job? You've served in Vietnam. You got it." How many? How long did you uh, stay working for Anheuser Busch? Twenty years. So you they, a... they sent me to school. They trained me on the job. Got full benefits. I spent twenty years with them making draft beer, keg beer. Didn't know anything about it except how to drink it with the best of them at happy hour. And I spent 20 years with Anheuser Bush and retired, and then moved to Florida for retirement. Oh, that's I've been great. 
I've been here ever since. Actually, speaking of being able to drink the best of them, I think that's a pre pre qualification for being in the military. You got to know how to drink. So, I oh, listen, let me tell you, we used to when I used to fly into Honolulu to Hickam Air Force Base on the 141. When we'd get there, we'd had already had a long day, and we check into the BOQ. Well, the BOQ had a had a big refrigerator full of cold beer. We used to drink them out of beer all the time. The whole crew, I mean, because everybody'd have six or seven, and we'd just empty them of, of cold beer. They'd run out all the time. We'd have beer cans laying everywhere. Yeah, that culture has definitely changed the military. After, uh, oh, was it like six or seven years, uh, my first, first initial six or seven years, everything was kind of revolved around alcohol. Every event we had, there was always beer, uh, open bars, a beer trailer somewhere, kegs in the barracks. That culture's all gone. Let me tell you something. You stayed drunk in Vietnam. That's the way, that's the way you survived it. You either got on drugs or got drunk. Or accommodation. I yeah, mean, that was, that was, because it was terrible. It was horrible. It was all jungle, and you didn't know who the good guy was or the bad guy was. And, I mean, every day was a gamble of the dice, whether you're going to see the next sunrise or not. So Vietnam was horrible. And we, I just I drank beer like there was no tomorrow. I mean, when yeah. I wasn't drunk, I was drunk. Yeah, they don't I mean, let us, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, they don't allow us to drink. But, of course, we have ways to get it. There's always ways to get it, though, and uh, or you get it from the locals in the area, you know, Muslim country. Yeah, I, I, I've been over in that part of the world, so I know what that's all about, too. So, yeah, I, I understand. We got a lot yeah. more in common than you think we do, sir. Oh, we do. Yeah, I, I, it's shocking because I keep saying it's a small world, and it's like you've literally – I mean, I know you've traveled way more than I have, but um, literally just about every state you've been to at one point, I've been somewhere in that state somewhere. Just it, It's really cool. It's really well, nice. This, all happened because of the United States Air Force enlistment. Otherwise, it would never transpire. I mean, I, I've been to the South Pole. I've been to Antarctica. I've been to the North Pole. I've been, I've been completely around the world twice, all the way around, on yeah. embassy runs. I could never have done that otherwise. I couldn't. Nobody, you and I, nobody else in this world could afford a vacation like that unless we were multimillionaires, which we're not. So. I mean, compliments my military time. It, I, I got to see an awful lot of the world and a lot of the USA. Yeah, it's uh, the military. People don't realize it. I know we're kind of hurting on our recruiting goals right now for the overall military, but people don't realize the doors that can open, the adventure that you can see, and it doesn't matter what branch. It just no, it doesn't. Pick something I mean, and but there's been such like I when I started in the beginning, there's such a drastic change because. When I was 18 years old, you you could you were going to get drafted. Today it's all volunteer, and my heart goes out to them. Yeah, I prefer. You know, I know the draft in Vietnam had to happen. Uh, didn't have a choice, um, but I'm glad we stuck to a volunteer force because that means the people that are there legitimately want to be there. And it's they not- want to be there. We had an awful lot in Vietnam that didn't want to be. I didn't want to be, but I had a job to do, and I did it to the best of my ability. Yes. But I saw an awful lot of kids that uh, they got hooked on drugs and, I mean, got tossed out of the service because the drugs got them. It never got me. You know, I was already too old for that. When I went to Vietnam, PCS, I was already 33 years old. So, I, you know, I had a lot of time behind me. And they used to call me grandpops over there all the time. You know? uh, when I went to POW Survival School at Fairchild Air Force Base, 
Uh, ironically, I went after I came back from Vietnam, if you can believe that. I'd already been in combat when they sent me to survival school at Fairchild in Spokane, Washington. And when I went through that school, the commandant himself, the commander of the school, called me Pops because of my age. I was 35. Going through POW school, and I'd already been in combat, but I had to go to school to continue to fly on the 141. Which is sad because, uh, I know once I had, I made my seven, uh, you're considered old by that time of the military standards. And it's like, I'm only, I think that time I was only like 28 or 29 when I made my seven. And yeah. it's like, I ain't, I ain't, I ain't, I just, I just had six on yesterday. I was an old man. All of a sudden I got seven today and y'all think I'm an old man. It's like, I don't think so. So. Well, you got the best of the world by getting the promotion. I, I tried to get there and I, they, just it didn't happen for me. I retired as an E six. You know, once I made seven though, it becomes too political. Or when you start sitting in those positions, it becomes yeah. too political. I hate it. It wasn't fun. I wasn't around the soldiers hardly ever anymore. And that's what you know. I always told people, you know, take care of your soldiers first because they're going to make you look better than you're going to make yourself look better. Because soldiers do the job you're well and do. You're only as good as your peers around you, my friend. Mm-hmm. Your peers and subordinates. You're only as good as those that are around you. So now you're retired again. What do you do on a daily basis now that you got two retirements now? <laughs> nice to take care of the grandkids. Well, I'm 80, 83 years young right now, taking care of twin grandsons, two years old. Twins. Then I got two, I got two 14 years old. Teenagers that I transport to school every day and pick up. Uh, my life is pretty busy, sir. Uh, it sounds like, especially with twin two-year-olds. I, I only I, one I, I keep telling everybody, like Marilyn, I said, you know, 24 years ago, I was retired. Today, I'm not. I'm working again. Yeah, they, keep you, they keep you young. They keep me busy. They keep me active. The mind is still functioning fairly good. Uh I do have my moments when I forget things, you know, I mean, it's all part of the aging process. Physically, I'm not doing too bad. I've got my aches and pains and my problems, but due to the good Lord, I'm still here. You still got, you still got a long way to go too, especially with two uh, grandkids that are only two years old. So you got a long way to go. I like to tell everybody that, uh, and this, this is very true. And when I was in Vietnam, God was my co-pilot. Hmm. I could tell you some stories that, I mean, I don't know how I survived Afghanistan, my first one in 2010-11. And everybody's like, well, somebody was watching out for you. It's like, clearly, I should not have walked out of that country. Most of the people that I was there with should not have walked out of that country. So, um, in Afghanistan, alive, or even unscathed. Uh, without becoming too religious, I always tell people that the good Lord's got us all here for a reason. We serve mm-hmm. him and and I'm learning that every day to this day. And I got six kids now that are I shouldn't even have right now. God bless you. I, I raised five. <laughs> my oldest is 11. And my youngest is two. Yeah, my youngest is two. So they're all, it looks like somebody said it looks like the cell phone signal on your phone, just like that perfectly. So lined up in a row. So, but that definitely something blessed me with a good woman now. Uh, my first one wasn't so great, but now I got six kids and. The stupid stuff I did in Afghanistan, I shouldn't even be here right now. But uh, we all make mistakes. It's all part of the growing process. I 
I did the same thing. I, I made my, my mistakes that I regret today, but that's all part of life. You know, you learn. Hopefully you learn. Oh, I've learned. And my kids are keeping me young, and I hope those uh, twins keep you young and on your toes yeah. for at least 20 years. They're, 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 they get to be a little bit too much sometimes. They're, they're, so, they're so full of energy. It's unreal. It's just unbelievable. I know. Well, I appreciate you coming on, sir. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, hopefully you stay around for a little bit longer and we, your twins are the twin grandbabies can see this at some point and realize who grandpa really was. And, you know, 20 years in the military is, you know, a lot of people don't think of it. That's quite a feat. No matter what branch you do, being a retiree, um, getting to see 44 countries, you said 44 foreign countries. Around the world, all the way, twice, and in every state in the United States of America, at least one time. So, and that's something that maybe only a couple handfuls of people can even say at all. So, the old thing is, been there and done that, right? Got the t-shirt, got the badge. I'm blessed to be here. I'm proud that I served. Well, I'm glad you jumped on with me to share your story. Um, But have a good day. I, I, know you're in my uh, I know you're in Florida right now, so I know you need to go enjoy that nice Florida summer or well, spring. <laughs> but it's uh, we're we're actually about to get a thunderstorm this afternoon. It's that time of year for us. Mm. Uh, it's been my pleasure with conversing with you and giving you part of my life story. Uh, please feel free at any time if you feel you want to contact me. Please do so. Oh, definitely, sir. Uh, well, this wraps up this episode of the Swandingo Files with Herb Richards, the man that's traveled our man that's traveled around the world twice, forty-four different countries. Now his biggest task is twin grandbabies at two years old. That's worse than that's harder task than anything he's ever done. Well, folks, that's all we have for today's episode of the Swandingo Files. I hope you've enjoyed this journey with your host, Stephen Swanson, as much as he enjoys recording it. Remember, transitioning from military life to civilian life is tough. But with a little bit of grit, a dash of humor, and a lot of determination, you can overcome any obstacle. So until next time, keep on trucking, and keep Swandingoing.